Hi everyone, it's Kino here. Thanks so much for joining me on Seek Up, the yoga inspiration show. I am so grateful for you and grateful to you for tuning in and sharing this journey with me. I am overwhelmed with how many people come up to me and say that they're really enjoying this type of communication, teaching, and sharing. So thank you so much for being a part of this journey of yoga, this journey of spirituality, this journey of mindfulness, this journey of seeking wisdom. More than anything else, this is meant to support the seeker's journey, meant to support you on the path. If you find this series of teaching really beneficial, the way that you can support this series is to become a member of the Om Stars yoga community and practice. We have decided to make this series free and available to everyone so that no matter where you are in the world, you can get the teachings that will hopefully provide sustenance for the seeker's journey. And for those of you that can become a member and give your support, please know that I appreciate it. And I'll see you on the mat real soon. Welcome, Keenan McGregor, to Keenan Yoga. Trying to track you down for years now. So we've finally got you. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. It's good to be here with you. Yeah, it's really nice to have you. Um, I suppose the first question, knowing you're in Mysore right now, um, and well, you've been in Mysore through the various incarnations. Obviously, you were there in Lakshmi Puram and the, and the tiny Shala, the original mm-hmm. Shala. Then you were there in Gokulam. I remember you there. Um, and then now in the in the new um, airplane mm. hangar, I suppose. How I mean, you know, without kind of saying, oh, it's all the same, which I'm sure you're going to say, oh, it's the same practice. You know, kind of how I mean, how has it changed, and and how how have you adapted to it to Mysore over these different incarnations and years you've been going? Well. You know, while you're right, the practice is the same. It is also remarkably different, you know? So if I think back to my first trip to India more than 20 years ago, I think it was in 2000, then the country of India was just totally different, you know? Mm. So we were practicing in that small shala in Lakshmipuram with 12 students at a time. The community here was 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 quite small. There were only 40 students when I came and then um, it whittled down to there being only 12 of us left for, you know, at the end. Yeah. And yeah. so there was one batch in the small shala and it was still, at, you know, four in the morning and, and walk over in the darkness and practice. It was really special and it was, felt really isolated then because there was no mm. internet um, or there was, the, I mean, there was no private internet, really. You had to go to an internet cafe and it was yeah. a dial-up connection and you felt really far away from everything back at home because, you know, nobody had cell phones and there was no kind of FaceTiming with your family and stuff like mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. You know, the iPhone hadn't been invented yet and, you know, there was no... How old are you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Before like the iPhone? The day. Yeah, yeah. 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 No. And, um... You know, then to see them shift into the Gokulam Shala uh, when there were, I don't know how many people in Mysore, then like 50. And I remember people saying, even to me back then, on my very first trip to Lakshmipuram, oh, it's not the same anymore. Oh, it's too many people. Well, I don't even bother going. It's not what it used to be. People mm. said that to me back then in 2000. Mm. And I'm really grateful that I didn't listen to them and I went. And then, you know, uh, there was a shift when Patabi Joyce died and the community shifted. There was a shift also, I think, when the, 
you know, revelations about various egregious acts that Patavi Joyce had done came to light in our Ashtanga community. There was a shift then. And I feel that right now what, um, you know, what Sharaji is doing in his new Shala is very much kind of claiming his own space. And mm. I feel for him to be the grandson of such a sort of momentous and powerful figure, it has been something for him to claim his own identity within this lineage. And being here yeah. in this new new shala, which is outside of Gokulam, maybe 15, 20 minutes outside in a whole new space, it's entirely of his own creation. So he chose the floors, he put the floors down, right. he organized mm. the shala. And so it's all really set up uh, as he wanted it, as he wants it. So there is this feeling of a new energy. And it is mm. this feeling of a very intentionally created space that, you know, is definitely rooted within the lineage, but it's very much, um, you know, consciously created in, uh, you know, in the new vein of what we could say the practices. So for example, one of the things that I noticed when I walked into the Shala is that up on, uh, and there is kind of like, you know, a platform um, that Chatterjee sits on uh, for conference, um, mostly just for conference, actually. Uh, and like he doesn't, I, I, I did, I'm, I've not seen him sit once during the Mysore practice. So I've only seen him right. sit during the conference. He, he stands and looks around, um, but I've not seen him sit once uh, during the Mysore practice. But walking in up on the stage area, there were, um, little information cards, what we would call in the West consent cards. So there's um, something there's a, and they're laminated and one says I'm injured and another one says I'm pregnant and another one says, I don't need help today. And anybody can take them. And I've actually seen, um, I've seen a woman who has an, who has an ankle injury, walk up to the shop, walk up to the stage every day and grab an I'm injured card and put it in front of her mat. Um, and I saw someone else grab, I don't need help today and put that on their mats. So people are using them. And that's kind of really, really new in terms mm. of the teacher student relationship. And I think that strategy has been able to do that in his space and kind of create mm. that. Um, there's also um, his three of his long-term Indian students, local students here in Mysore, uh, have a beginner's batch that they teach uh, kind of on an upstairs ledge. And this is something that is, is, is you know, so it's, it's before there was only kind of the really intense batch in the morning and then an afternoon kind of relaxed batch. And now there's kind of intermediary batch. And you see mm -hmm. a lot more of the locals coming in because now, they can come at a time that doesn't interfere with their job and this kind of thing. And there's so many more Indian students than there used to be from all over India, but also especially Mysore and the, you know, the Southern region of Karnataka. And so that's really, really nice to see. Um, you know, uh, there's of course the assistants started coming in the Shala. So there's, there's assistance and that's been going on for a little while, but it, it's mm. just, there's a really kind of um, nice energy that's there. And I feel like, you know, um, Shadaji just opened the space before the pandemic and then he was stuck like we all were in not, mm. you know, not teaching. And he was doing these lead classes with us online, which we were really grateful for. But there seems to be this uh, felt by everyone who's here, this gratitude to kind of be here, hopefully with COVID in our rearview mirror. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a definitely a more comprehensive answer than I was expecting. And I really, <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I was just expecting the kind of role fest, you know, the practice is the same, you know, but uh, yeah, very, 
very nice to hear. And for someone who hasn't been, you know, for a few years, I'm kind of very curious and, and that's great. And I mean, the obvious next question um, is how how do you envisage your practice with, with Sharat has changed and your relationship with, with Sharatji has changed over the years, mm. and especially as you were always someone who could kind of almost kind of get away with anything when when we were we were, when we weren't meant to be kind of doing any of this kind of marketing or even you know like writing or, or talking about ashtanga or anything you were there doing everything and uh, you still had this great relationship it seems you know with uh with Patabi Joyce and Shirachi um so uh, you know how have you managed it over all these years first of all well I mean I think that first of all I see them and I have always seen them both as my teachers so mm. for me, I felt like they're my teachers and when I'm in their presence, I'm going to do everything I can to be a really, really good student. And at the same time, I have always been someone to never kind of create distance. So I would always just completely tell them everything that was going on. So, I mean, right. I, well, I had a, I remember um, in the, in the, in the in locking forum, Shala, I wanted to try to do some of the asanas myself and uh, Patabi Joyce was coming to help me and I wanted to try to do it myself before he helped me. And even then I, I looked at him and I said, self-doing, self-trying possible one time, please. And he'd let me try and then he would help me. And after, so I have always just communicated to both of them as I would communicate almost to anyone. And mm. I remember in the, in the first time I was in the Gokulam Shala, I did something to my shoulder and I walked right into the office and I said, you know, last night, I don't know what happened. I just woke up and my shoulder is hurting. I don't know what I'm going to do today. I'm just letting you both know my shoulder feels a little off. And I would just constantly tell them, like I would give them little reports about how I was feeling and what I was doing and this kind of thing. And honestly, it's them who always, who kind of saw the potential of me to be a teacher. I never thought I was going to be an Ashtanga teacher. I never asked for the authorization or the certification. I am, you know, in fact, I had a guilty conscience about teaching a little bit because after my first trip to India, when I came back, I absolutely did not want to teach, but I would talk to people and then they would say, that sounded really awesome. Could you show me what you learned in your two months in India studying with these yoga masters? And I was like, no, I'm not qualified. I'm not a teacher. And I would try to send them to other places. And at some moment I started to be like, okay, I'll show you what I know, but I'm not going to take any money for it. And then I felt really guilty about that. And then I, I, I remember on my second trip there sitting in Patabi Joyce's office and I felt I was going to confession. And I just did this whole like, I'm so sorry, but I actually taught people this yoga. I really apologize. I know I wasn't supposed to, and I'm so sorry. And immediately he smiled and said, "Um, teaching for you, no problem. Go teach. Next year, you Mm -hmm. take authorization. And then, and then, um, you know, Chatterjee was there and he, and then he said to me, next year you take authorization. Then when you finish advanced, you take certification. So they're like, they like volunteered that for me when I didn't even, I was just like, oh, oh okay. It's really not what I was asking for. And I just like ran out of the office and yeah, yeah. didn't tell anybody. And, um, you know, and then, and then it all kind of happened. So I feel like they constantly pushed me to, to, to sort of, to, to, to teach. And, you know, um, I feel like my intention has always been to kind of make the practice more accessible and to help people try to understand that they can do it. And, you know, I feel like that's really the essence of what, um, you know, what I've been doing. So I felt like, well, I feel like in my own heart, I felt like I'm keeping true to my own 
in, to the lineage in my own way. And if my teachers have something to say to me, let them say it to me directly, you know? Mm. So that's, um, that's kind of how I, how I guess I feel I've been able to just navigate the space yeah. of, you know, um, maybe there's some, you know, ideas of what people have, the dogma of the practices, but I always just go back to, well, I have a relationship with these beings and I tell them mm. things and they interact with me. So if they have a problem, they have no problem telling me when I'm doing something wrong, if my toe is out of line or my gaze is wrong. They're the first ones to tell me. So they'll tell me if I'm doing something wrong. Do they ever mention anything to the chat say, oh, I read your book, by the way, it was really good or, or nice mat or, you know, do they ever pass comment anything, did, anything you were doing like that? Um, should I just Sorry, make some comments curious, about yeah. mats or something like that? Like he, <laughs> I think he asked me like, oh, Kino, I like this mat. Um, I think it was like, where did you make it? How did this come? You know, right. and so we've had conversations like that. And then, um, you know, I, I, I did have a conversation with him about, about like videos on YouTube and, and he brought mm. it up and he, and he actually said, um, he said, I'm so sorry. People are complaining about your videos on YouTube. He actually said that because apparently mm. someone had complained to him about my videos on YouTube. And then, and this was like long back before I started Omstars and, and yeah, yeah. You know, it was like a long time ago when, when YouTube was really our primary interface with the online mm -hmm. world. And then he, and then he said, I told them to leave you alone that you're just trying to help people. Wow. It seems like you've been very blessed in your relationship with this, you know, and then the whole thing has just flown naturally. I'm sure it hasn't. I mean, no one's kind of practiced life flows naturally, but it appears that way. I mean, you know, how did you first get into it? What were you doing before, by the way? What, what, did you have a career before or what were you doing mm, before, well, before and how did you yeah. start and get into it? Yeah. I mean, I did my first yoga class when I was 19. So I was still in right. school, um, right. in undergraduate school, and I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I had a few different ideas of what the career trajectory would be like. And then it just, um, sort of deviated. And I just realized I didn't want to pursue those actions. So I still pursued higher education. And then it was, I was, it was actually when I moved to New York city to get my master's degree from New York university or NYU that I started to tap into this traditional Ashtanga yoga community. And then it was really from there that yoga just kind of took over my life. I just never pursued more higher. I tried for a little bit, but it was never, my heart was never really in it to pursue more higher education. And I just felt like more than anything, after that first trip to India, I just felt like I want to get back to India and spend as much time as I can with these teachers, especially Patabi Joyce, who was older. I just felt like I don't know how much time he has left. I want to really be here for as long as possible. So my first trip was for two months. The next time I came to India was for six months. Then the next time I came was another for six months. So I just felt like, let me go and immerse myself in the practice. And that's really all I wanted. I just wanted to immerse myself in the practice as much as I could. Mm -hmm. And obviously you had, I mean, you know, we don't need to touch up on the issue particularly, but you had a positive experience of Batavi Joyce and, and that. You know, yeah. That, that for you, yeah. 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 So for me, you know, um, it, because of my positive relationship with Batavi Joyce and I, because I mm -hmm. never experienced any of the egregious acts mm -hmm. of harm that he committed um, towards other individuals, that was a big mm -hmm. reckoning for me in regards mm -hmm. to, you know, hearing that someone who's treated you really nicely has harmed mm. others. So that was, that, that created a, um, a sort of opened up a whole door of soul searching and it, you know, it wasn't really easy um, to be honest with you. And, and, and when these, when these um, revelations came to light, I was actually going through um, like a personally really difficult period, 
totally unrelated to um, anything in the Ashtanga community. And um, so it was actually really difficult to process just because I was personally spread really thin amongst some very, very other difficult and challenging experiences in my life. And um, yeah, there were some situations where I was just totally blindsided by the information and didn't have the time to process before, unfortunately, being uh, being sort of asked to make public statements about mm. what was happening. Mm. And because I was enmeshed in this other really intense thing that was going on, I was actually kind of not enmeshed in what was going on in the Ashtanga community because this mm. other thing that was going on, it, it, like just to like, you know, that was, that was, that was just really, really intense and, and, and reaching like what felt like, you know, astronomical scale of just disastrous mm. proportions. So that, so that actually, you know, um, like I, I joined, um, uh, like I, I gave a podcast interview that I thought was going to be about the other stuff that was going on. And then it turned into being completely about everything that was happening about Patavi Joyce. And um, I was totally blindsided. And mm. I, unfortunately, you know, I only realized that it was, it, it, it kind of, it was kind of an inappropriate ask. And I should have just said, look, I'm not prepared to speak about this. I haven't mm. really read up on this. I need some time to process on my own. Instead, I just tried to kind of like speak. Um, mm. And I really should have said no. And then unfortunately, I like later that day, I said, I, I really don't think that what I said in this interview is really indicative of how I want to represent this. I'm not processed. And I, because of my own personal traumatic past, I don't always recognize when things aren't right, right away. It often takes me 24, 48 hours to realize, hey, that wasn't cool with me. And these were two men that just said, you missed your chance. So we're just going to take this and publish it anyway. And we don't care what you think. So I felt, vi I felt violated uh, by the podcast, yeah, but I never felt yeah, violated. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and I kept saying, yeah. this is unacceptable. This crosses a line yeah. for me. Please don't publish this. You don't have my, I literally said, you don't have my consent. Mm -hmm. And here they go, two white men publishing an interview with me about consent violations and about, you know, boundary <laughs> violations mm -hmm. and abuse of women. When I'm yeah. literally using words to them, I don't give you my consent. And they did it anyway. Yes. Because I knew I didn't, I knew that I, what I said was off the cuff and I knew that what I said yes. hadn't been processed because I hadn't had the emotional space to process it. You know what I mean? So I'm mm. still kind of like, gosh, I wish they hadn't have done that. But, you know, what, what it led me to was then I had like direct conversations with Karen Rain and I did go through the process work around that. But I just wish I would have been able to have gone through the process work around that before being asked to speak publicly. And I wish I would have had my own boundaries strong enough but unfortunately, because I'm a trauma survivor myself, I sometimes don't get yeah. my boundaries stable mm. right from the beginning, especially and this is especially when there's a man that's being really, really forceful <laughs> towards me. You know, that's yeah. that's the exact situation where I'm often like going with the flow to try to make it okay. <laughs> I realized mm. 24 to 40 hours later, like, oh, that actually wasn't okay. So mm. you know, yeah. That's utterly unacceptable to not. I mean, I always say here, like, if it's not, you know, if it's yeah. not what you want to say, then just we'll, we'll can it. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it, yeah, it's, yeah. I can't, I can't believe that. What a shame. I mean, has you just closing this subject now because I want to talk about other things as well. And, and you know, this has had a lot of airtime and uh, it's still a hot button. Um, well, has has your relationship with the practice changed and the way that you teach and present it changed due to any of this information? Do you think? I mean, obviously, your teaching mm. has changed over the years anyway. But, um, you know, do you yeah. think it's directly changed due to any of this? 
Well, I think all of our teaching has changed mm. because of it. So, you know, the fact that these kind of consent cards and informational cards mm. available mm-hmm. in the Shala here and in, in, in Mysore, you know, with Shadaji is evidence that the whole community yeah. has kind of evolved. There's so much more space for kind of the agency of the student and there's so much less rigidity around the dogma, around, um, you know, what constitutes good practice, you know? So I think we've all softened and I, I almost feel like, you know, people that are newer to the practice, like if, if we can kind of help them maybe not fall into the dogma, then that, 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 that's a benefit for them. But maybe people need to go through like a really kind of like enthusiastic, dogmatic, strict, rigid period so that they can soften at some moment. So maybe it's okay that people are sort of in that stage themselves if they're there. But myself personally, I think there's been a dramatic number of things that have definitely evolved my teaching. Um, definitely taking Patavi Joyce off of that pedestal has been a very big uh, shift in how I present the teachings. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because, um, you know, being non-Indian and, um, you know, mixed race, but not of Indian origin, I'm super sensitive to uh, paying respect to the origin culture of India and really integrating as much um, of, of that as possible in the presentation of the practice, while at the same time being really kind of conscious about some of the things that we may take we may not see as non-Indians coming into the practice. For example, you know, the, the, the different sort of privileges and access points to this practice historically within India and how that kind of, you know, um, uh, kind of cloistering of the knowledge may have impacted uh, other non-privileged members of, you know, Indian society. And at the same time, um, you know, the question of accessibility is of course a question of social justice. So it's kind of like, you know, as, as I evolve as, 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 a, as a human being, and I want to include more questions of accessibility in the practice, then I think that sort of begs the question of uh, bringing social justice issues to kind of the forefront of the teaching. I mean, for myself personally, I'm a long-term Vipassana meditator, so I've been sitting for about 20 years. And I think that maybe taking Patavi Joyce off the pedestal kind of gave me permission to really integrate in a much more concrete way um, how the teaching of Vipassana has personally impacted my own practice. And now I'm integrating it much more consciously in my teaching. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can see in what you're doing that, yes, it's you're increasingly trying to make it more and more accessible, doing, you know, more kind of variations on postures and, and uh, you know, kind of make, making it so everyone, every single person has accessibility to, to what is an, mm-hmm. an amazing technique. And, it, and that's, that's fantastic to see, because obviously you're a leader in this in this field, not only in yoga, but in Ashtanga. So, um, you know, for you to be doing that is is a really important and, and fantastic thing. Um, to, Not to dumb it down at all, but, but how did you, I mean, how did you um, develop your you're teaching in the first place because okay you've got these old teachers and they're kind of famous and they were kind of famous for being old right but then you just came up out of nowhere like how did you do that and did you do it on purpose I mean to some extent right and and what I mean you're using social media but I mean you really are obviously a phenomenon in, in what you've done and how you created a career out of it and um, you know so I'd love for you to say anything about that you could well, I think that, <laughs> yeah, I mean, after, I mean, I feel like after I got the formal authorization from my teachers, I felt like, okay, now you have responsibility to teach. So now you have to do it. And I remember, um, like, I guess it was sort of a weird confluence of different events is that I was sitting um, in Denmark because, you know, my husband, Tim is from Denmark, mm-hmm. but he wasn't my husband then. 
He was right. a very attractive, tall man with blue eyes that I'd met and wanted to see again. And um, he was, Tim used to be a dancer and a choreographer and mm. he had his own dance company in Denmark and was kind of at the avant-garde of the dance community of Denmark. And, you know, just because he met me, it wasn't like, okay, well, let's, let's immediately move to Miami. That took a few years. So I was sitting in Denmark with this authorization to teach thinking, how am I going to teach? And I don't really have, like, I don't have a work permit. I'm not really sure. What can I do? And I thought, well, you know, then Tim said, well, why don't you just give like a workshop here? And I, and I thought, okay, well, I could try that. And then when I had been in, in India, there was a woman from Ireland who said, I want to learn to jump through. And I see the way you jump through and I want you to teach me what you do. And I was like, you really should ask Patabi Joyce and, and Sharat how to jump through. I should, like, I'm not your teacher. And then she said, well, I did. And they said what I was doing was fine, but I'm not fine with it. So I want to do what you do. Would you teach me? And I was like, I won't teach you, but if you come over for chai, we can play around with jump throughs together. How about that? And I was really like, I'm not your teacher, but I'll drink chai with you. And we can kind of like talk about jump throughs. So how everybody like talks about all their asanas here in Mysore and their off time, you know? And then, and then like, we got into like, do this, do that, try this, do that, all the kind of stuff that I do because I had to teach myself all of this stuff. So I wasn't mm. naturally good at anything. And so I just mm. literally shared with her kind of like my process and inner dialogue around how I went from not doing it to doing it. And she said, mm. wow, this is really awesome. Would you come to Ireland and teach my students the same technique? And I was like, Ireland is like really close to Denmark. So I'm going to say yes to that. And I said, yes, because I thought, well, what am I going to do in Denmark? I can't just, I can't, and I felt like I can't just derail my life for some tall, attractive, blue-eyed boy that I met. I need to have something that I'm doing properly over there. So I was like, yes. And Alex Medine, who had... I'm, who's a wonderful friend of mine. He runs the, you know, the center up in Nissen in, in Norway, mm. which I go to teach at in the summer. It's one of my favorite places in the world. Um, so Alex was, he was a former dancer and, and, and many things, but Alex had this idea of creating a dance performance in honor of Patabi Joyce's like, I don't know, it was like 10th, 10th or whatever visit to England. And he thought I had been a dancer, which I had never been a dancer and I was never a gymnast, but he thought I was. So he invited me to be a part of this dance performance. So then I had two things that I was doing in Europe. And as part of that, then the yoga studio that Alex was a part of invited me to like give some talks and do some things while I was there. And the dance performance was utterly humiliating because if you've never been a dancer and then you need to dance, it's just absolutely like, just, I, I was, I, it was worse than any asana because I feel like you're allowed to fail at asana, but this was just horrible. And there was all this terminology I didn't know. And I mean, I managed to do it at the end. And luckily Tim came over to London and he helped me out a little bit because he was at least understood what like tendu and whatever and releve. And what, I have no idea. I was just like, they're saying all these words and I'm like, bleh, bleh, and I'm really bad and not able to keep the time. It was just horrible. And then I was like freaking out because Batavi Joyce was going to be there. And so whatever, it was really bad, but we did this performance and then this kind of like, yeah, I remember hmm. oh, you, oh, oh God, you were there. Oh no, there's a video of it out there too, which I just, I hope they all burn or get lost and don't get digitized. Like, please Lord, let that never arrive on YouTube. Um, so then anyhow, but like from that, a lot of people started talking to me, what are you doing over here? Oh, I, you know, I gave a little talk over there. I did a jump through workshop in Ireland. And then really quickly, people started just asking me to like show up and teach something. So that's kind of how it started uh, that mm. I would do workshops in different places uh, it was, you know, it's this weird combination of being like 
stranded in a foreign country and not really having anything to do. But then, and then at some moment I decided to be like, okay, let's do this. Like, let's, you know, let's reach out. And the hardest place for me to reach out was actually in Miami um, because Mm. I wasn't there long enough to really build up a community. And in the United States, everybody at that point would just ask for your yoga Alliance certificate. And I didn't have one, you know, and when we opened after I got the certification and Tim got the authorization and he let go of his dance company in Denmark. um, And we sort of moved to Miami and opened Miami life center at that point, we both got on the phone to Yoga Alliance and we're, and we're like harassing them to give us what they call grandfathering in accreditation. So they did, but it was like really ridiculous to have like spent, you know, years at this point studying yoga, traditional yoga with our, you know, our teachers in Mysore and also the various other chanting and philosophy teachers that we connect with here, you know, like Jayashree and Narasimhan. And then to have Yoga Alliance be like, have you done a course mm. here in the United States that meets our requirement. I was like, no, but I can document all these hours in India. And then they finally, but it was like a lengthy process. I was like, and it was like, like faxing papers into them and whatnot. And they finally accepted it. So, so yeah, it was kind of, it's kind of been a weird, uh, circuitous kind of path, but also serendipitous, you know, it's been like, well, there was a need here. And so then, okay, okay, let's, let's explore mm. that need. And then there's a need here and then, okay, well, let's explore that and see where it goes. I, you know, I never thought that I wanted to start making videos to be honest with you. The way I started making videos was that eHow, which is a website based in the US that gives like short tutorials on everything from yoga to how to fix your air conditioning machine and how to put, you know, um, uh, anti-freeze in your, in your, you know, refrigerator or whatever, uh, a coolant in your car. Uh, they yeah, contacted yeah, yeah. me one day and said, we've identified you as a yoga expert. Would you like to make some short videos for us? And then they came to the list and they were going to like pay me. And I was excited. I was like, wow, sure. No problem. And then the guy who made the video said to me, it's because I would complain about some of the topics that they gave. I was like, this isn't real. This is ridiculous. This, why are we even, there was something like yoga for, or, or, or like, like 10 best yoga pants. And I was like, I don't want to talk about yoga pants. I want to talk about something else. And he said, why don't you make your own YouTube channel? So I said, okay, sure. And so we made a financial agreement for him filming the videos and we opened my YouTube channel. And that's kind of how it started. Thing is, I think you do have quite a lot of yoga pants though. So it was a fairish <laughs> question. <Let's>, you know, <laughs> and he'd obviously seen something there. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, I can answer the question. <laughs> I can answer the question why, you know, why you're, why you're good um, and why you've been, been so popular myself. Because I always recommend people to look at your videos. They're excellent and they really are practical and ex- kind of like give variations, give possibilities, give step-by-step. They're really great, um, you know. Um, so, yeah, I thank want you. to say on behalf of everyone, thank you for them. Um, I've used them myself. Um, so, uh, fantastic. Um, what other influences have you taken on and brought into the practice to develop this? Or I suppose it's a broader question as well. Like what other influences be, be they physical or, uh, non-physical, you know, you talked about the Vipassana mm-hmm. and different things have you brought into the practice that have been most, uh, informative, you know? Mm. I mean, I and- feel, yeah, I feel that Vipassana meditation is probably, uh, the, the foundation of my sadhana as well as the asana practice. There's definitely been mm. a shift that I felt like 
I love my asana practice, but my sitting practice is really the ground that keeps me sane. So I feel that there's there's like elements to my morning, uh, my morning sadhana, and I sit for one hour every morning. And then after I sit, then I have a time of prayer where I connect in with the divine, I connect in with God. And for me, that's the time that's really, for me, that's really, really sacred and quiet. And I really would prefer to have no interaction with the world until at least that is done. I don't mind if I talk to people after that, um, before I do my asana practice. Uh, if I And then after that time of meditation and prayer, then uh, I often feel like if I have the time, but I'm not ready to just stand and you know, samastitihi and start doing sun salutations. So then I will do a few very light kind of restorative postures uh, to sort of help me make this transition from this very deep, introspective, quiet space into my personal practice. Um, so that I feel is something I'm, I'm, I'm integrating more and more in my teaching uh, mm. because I think that this is something that we miss very often as Ashtanga yoga practitioners is the more subtle elements of the practice and the kind of permission to go a little softer. And the permission to have a day where we may do the Ashtanga practice, but in a deconstructive means, you know, uh, Patabi Joyce always said that Ashtanga is breath, body, you know, uh, and focus. So when these three elements are present, we can be doing the Ashtanga method. It doesn't mean we have to nail every jump through and do our Mm. deepest patch. But if our mind is present and we're feeling our bodies and we're aware of our breath, if these three elements are present, we're still on the path. And this can create more sustainability in the practice rather than create this impossible sort of endless series of achievement where the goalposts mm. keep just seem to moving, moving, moving. And then instead we can learn to kind of, you know, just be. Um, so, I mean, I think the spirituality of the practice uh, and the spirituality of life is definitely a very big influence on my teaching and my practice and how I see the mm. practice. And that for me, I think is the essence really of, 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 well, why, you know, why we keep getting on the mat, why we keep showing up Mm -hmm. personally right now. I, and I've been on this kick for, for, uh, for a few years is that I'm very interested in the, the sort of leading edge research done in the field of positive psychology and happiness studies that Mm -hmm. kind of, uh, talks about the, the, the neurobiological basis of, of, of various moods and proclivities and how, certain practices can influence our cognitive biases as well as the hardwired structure of our neurobiology. And I've been so interested in it. So I've been, I I even considered like, should I stop teaching and go back to school and get another degree because I'm really interested in it. But I've just, you know, I'm just a really avid reader. So I'm just like devouring books on the topic. And Tim, Tim's my husband, you know, Tim is looking at me like, you're reading another one of those neuroscience books because I'm then I suddenly like talked to him about like, did you know that? <laughs> well, I was gonna, I mean, I was gonna ask about other physical aspects that you might do and include in practice, or, or you know, what other Ooh. physical aspects you've brought into practice, but maybe before that, I, was, I mean, how do you fit all this stuff in in the day? I mean, you know, I've always looked at your <laughs> workload and and you know, you go and teach and then you're going to your room, say at Purple Valley for hours, writing another book. You know, and I've just read uh, Kino's new book, Act of Love. It's really, really good. I mean, there's so many different references you bring into the book as well that yeah. shows a breadth of reading. It's you know, uh, people are going to want to know like how how do you structure and and not get super stressed out with, with your life mm-hmm. and all the demands on stars and all the different things you're doing. I can't even know how much you're doing. You know, how how do you make a line between these things and leave time for poor Tim? 
Yeah, no, I hear you. It's a good question. The whole question of, you know, boundaries and work-life balance Mm -hmm. and, and this sort of thing. I mean, I think that First of all, reading, I love, I just really enjoy reading. So for me, reading is a way that I uh, relax. So I prefer reading over um, movies. So I think that's one of the ways that I accumulate a lot of reading. If I'm left alone, I read rather than watch things. Um, And I feel it's just for me, it's more stimulating for my brain. It's more relaxing. I'm not, you know, blessing and a curse. I, I can't go to bed after watching a movie. It's impossible for me. I'm really sensitive to visual stimulus. So if I, we just watched, you know, we watched the, Tim and I were big Game of Thrones fans. So we watched House of the Dragon. And then I'm like, when Tim, like, he he like watches the episode and he's like, ah, and then he like brushes his teeth and goes to bed. And I'm like, oh my God, I I need to calm down. So I read for an hour just to get the dragons out of my brain. And then I can, you know, then I do, then I meditate for a little bit and then I sleep. So I'm constantly like, Okay, Tim is really the only person that makes me watch things. Like because this is like he really, like, he really loves. So he's like really super visual and you know former choreographer and working the arts. Really interested in the cinematography things and just loves watching movies and stuff like that. So but what we'll often do to kind of like spend a little time together and Tim will be like, "Do you want to watch something?" And I'm always wa- conscious of what time it is. But we'll like you know eat something watch a movie, spend a little time together. I've tried to get him to like co-read with me, but that has never succeeded at being a habit. Read it out to him, yeah, like a bedtime story. Yeah. Yeah, well, what happens is then what, what it will be yeah. is Tim will then say, read to me. And then he falls asleep and then and then I stop reading and then he wakes up and is like, oh, you stopped reading. And I'm like, you're asleep. Like, I want him to have a book that he reads on his own next to me. And then I, you know what I mean? (laughs) But that's never happened. So, I mean, I think like one of the things that um, I I guess that helps me be really productive is that I'm extremely sensitive to other people's energies. So when I'm around a lot of people for like a lot, whether it's teaching or socializing or even just being in an airport or something like that, or even in a mall or shopping or whatever, I need time alone. So the time alone can be, I, I like to go for a walk at home. I go for a walk on the beach and sometimes I allow my mind to float freely. Other times I multitask and I answer all my emails on the walk, which is really sort of like useful thing. But then when I get onto the actual beach, I just observe the nature. But then there's a, there's like a 15 minute, it's like a 15 minute walk to the beach. And during then it's when I'll just be like, okay, and I'll just get some stuff done on the way to the beach. And then I carve out time to do writing each day because the writing really fulfills me. So it depends on what my like practice schedule is like, uh, so if I'm home, sometimes what I will do is do my sitting, my sitting practice, my prayer practice, those few kind of restorative poses, then I'll go and I'll write for 30 minutes to an hour. And then I'll do my Ashtanga practice because my mind is really clear and I'm up and up before the rest of the world is up. So that's somehow really, really helpful. Um, but here in Mysore, I, I, they don't have that time. So I'm doing my writing kind of after I come back from my asana practice and, uh, you know, just whatever it is to carve out the time for that, I do. And, and that's another way also that somehow I detach from the overstimulation and I just kind of get in my space and uh, and work with it. Yeah. I mean, because on those workshops I and mean, you're teaching so many people sometimes, I've come to a workshop, I met you in London that time. So many people there all wanting a part of you, you know, a piece of you. And, and it must be very draining at times, right? And very overstimulating. So I can imagine once you've been and done all that, you want to kind of go and just be alone for a while, right? 
Yeah, I love the energy of teaching. I think there's really nothing more magical than kind of like mm. sharing space in a in a group class where there's kind of a powerful energy that's carrying each of the students yet still on their own individual journey. And I really love being present for all the students after when people come up and, you know, want a picture, or they have a question. I love when people bring me a copy of my book to sign. I'm never unhappy to do that. Um, and then when it's over, I want to be alone. You know, mm. so some people will say like, oh, let's go out to dinner. And I'll mm. be like, yeah, like take out and sitting at home is better for me. Uh, just because I feel like it, 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 like I love it. It's awesome. And I know if I'm going to recharge and be good for the next day, I do need a bit of quiet time myself after that. Um, and that could be, you know, going for a walk in nature or sometimes talking to someone that's not a yoga person is also potentially like I have some really old friends in London that I know from before, before, you know, that just aren't really like yoga people. So sometimes I could see one of them for an hour and they just, we just won't talk at all about anything yoga related. And I'll hear about like their life as a lawyer or something like that. And then, then that's kind of like entertaining in a different way, but I always mm. nevertheless still need some time alone. Mm. Well, Another thing I picked up from your book, and I was going to ask you, what's the next book, by the way? What, what are you writing on now? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, neuro reprogramming? Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, so this book that I just came out with called Act of Love, it, it, it yeah. came because um, through, and I mentioned before that there was like a big kind of disastrous, tumultuous period that I was going through. Mm. And that's kind of mentioned in that book as well. And then I, I felt that I, I literally had this experience on a meditation retreat where I had kind of really processed all of that stuff. And I saw through the different layers of kind of the root seed of where this cycle of suffering came from and the root seed of this other cycle of suffering where that came from. And I sort of saw through it all and I was feeling like, wow, I feel so much lighter. And at the end of the retreat, then I had this presence that I just really felt of come into the room, which I would identify as the presence of God. And, and I just felt this voice kind of really say to me, and just it almost like laid the words on my heart, let everything you do be an act of love. And it was kind of humorous because I was holding a toothbrush at the same time. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm brushing my teeth and I just heard it again. And I was like, okay, here we go. Like, love my teeth. And then I started to really dissect what that meant. If I was going to act in this way, I had to understand what action was. I had to understand what love was. And then I would have to understand what that would mean in terms of my thinking, my being, my work, and and and, and all of the different interactions. And then mm. I just, you know, took that uh, paradigm and applied it to all of these different um, situations that one may encounter in life. And, and I've really drawn upon all of my teaching experience and all of my meditation experience and all of the extra reading that I do to sort of see how we can actually be different people by learning to think different thoughts and learning to take different actions based on thinking different thoughts. So if we really think, is this, is the root of this action that I'm doing, whether it's starting a new business or going out to lunch with a friend or buying this outfit or eating this food. Is this really a, a way that I'm acting in love and to act in love is to act in alignment with the universe, to act into alignment with your higher self, to really fulfill your life's purpose. And then to ask that question over and over again is to really realize how often we don't choose that path, how often mm. we choose you know, the, the, the lower ground and we're not acting in love, but we're acting in selfishness. We're acting in spite. We're acting in pride. We're acting in arrogance. And, and then to see that is really humbling and, and, and hopefully creates enough crack in the veneer of ego to be willing to say, okay, 
uh, maybe I need a practice to help me think new thoughts and take new actions. And so that's kind of mm. the whole foundation of this, this book. And I will tell you that I had a really good program for how to write the yoga posture based books. But when I had this idea, this is very difficult because I had no like program. There was no, you know, asana to just kind of fall back on. I, I really had to create a structure out of kind of this amorphous teaching mm. that would always come up in the context of teaching asanas, but divorced from asanas. I wanted someone who'd never done an asana in their life to be able to read this book and be kind of inspired to live a better life and to understand what love means and maybe potentially be inspired to take up some sort of practice. So mm. it was, it was actually took a lot of iterations to come up with the structure of how to write this. And I hope so that I have, I have another idea, um, for a non asana book, but I'm working on an asana book right now. I'm actually working on, um, accessible Ashtanga so that, and, and so that's the, I'm, I'm currently working on it. And, uh, the thesis behind accessible Ashtanga is that we're going to, it is to address the question of accessibility from the intersections of social justice. So to really ask what accessibility means in Ashtanga yoga and to kind of also, you know, deconstruct a little bit of the the reasons why maybe we we haven't made the practice accessible yet. You know, like why why isn't it yet acceptable, uh, you know, mm. to, 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 to sort of do all these modifications and what does it mean to modify and when are we deviating from the lineage and when are we holding true to the lineage? And so every asana will have a tear variation and a floor variation for every single asana. And we'll, I'm doing primary series and second series, including, you know, all the standing poses and the closing poses. Because the reality of it is that there are people like my mom who has two total knee replacements who will never open her lotus position. Uh, there are people with total hip replacements or, you know, metal rods in their backs or, mm. you know, degenerative neurological disorders, stroke victims, people that are recovering from various forms of cardiovascular issues, people that have had long COVID and things like that, that are just not going to be able to ever, um, you know, stretch and open to such a degree, you know, that we wouldn't want to measure their practice in that way. Like we're not like my mom with her total knee replacements. We never really want her to close the knee. Otherwise she could be damaging, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the medical upgrade that's allowing her to yeah, walk yeah, and yeah. free. So, so, so I'm thinking like, how, how can we make her feel welcome without just being like, okay, well, you can never do Lotus. So you're stuck at Ardhavada Padmottanasana. Like that's not acceptable, you know? So yeah, I can't I, imagine you ever teaching that way. Did you ever teach that way? <laughs> like that kind of classic, I don't imagine you ever taught in that, exactly that kind of rigid way, right? It doesn't come across no. in your personality anyway. Um, yeah. The book is great. I mean, the, the Act of Love is a, a fantastic book. Um, you know, um, I, I really have enjoyed it. And the structuring is amazing. It's very clear to everyone, so please read it. Um, and it's, it's worthwhile. But uh, Kino is very candid in it. You, you speak very candidly about your own struggles. I've learned a lot of things uh, your relationship with Jesus Christ, interesting. Um, I was going to ask you about your TV show, but I found out from the book it's Game of Thrones. You do do mention <laughs> Game of Thrones in there, but uh, you know, but you were <laughs> you were really honest in it, and and you know, it's funny because everyone's going to look at you and go, "Well, this is a person who you know has the ability in Asana and who's going all over the world to teach." And there's you know, like you know, what has she got to worry about, right? I mean, well, you know, you, you speak there about having some pretty dark times. I mean, mm -hmm. would, would you like to? kind of briefly touch upon the, the motivation that got you into writing the book? Because I think that's important for people to hear as well. Yeah, well, I mean, the 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 the, the thing that happened for me was that 
first of all, I've struggled with depression since I was a little girl. So since the time I'm mm. nine years old, I can look back now and I can see that there have been these periods of depression. So there was this kind of really difficult, um, you know, uh, this sort of difficult period in my life where a really, really difficult legal battle was going on. Um, my father passed away and my father was like my rock in my life um, in a way that I'm so grateful that I had a father like that. And then there were just a whole host of other various stupid, small things that were also just adding to the general sense of grief and devastation and loss. And in the wake of this, I felt completely like I was drowning and like there was really no way out. Um, and I just kept feeling like I was not able to find the light again. And it just felt like an overwhelming wave of grief, sorrow, and loss. And it was kind of that that led me into um, the sort of quest that brought me to that meditation retreat where I processed the sort of root of a lot of the things that had sort of gone on. Um, and then, and then, and then the whole kind of revelation of understanding that, well, you know, I, I have a, I have a, a kind of like an interesting intersection to sit at. You know, I, I practice Buddhist meditation. My grandfather is Japanese and was Buddhist. And I feel that this is, uh, you know, a, a, a really wonderful part of my um, ancestry that I tap into when I, when I sit and then I practice and this, this, you know, very traditional um, yoga from India from, you know, the, the, the traditional Hindu practice. And then I also had this revelatory experience um, where I never thought that I would, but I had this relationship with Jesus kind of appear. And for me, I felt like, wow, I'm like sitting at the intersection of three major world religions. And yet I feel not constricted by the dogma of any. And mm. that, that is also really somehow interesting because I feel like, and liberating. I talked to some people who are um, really scared of practicing yoga because they consider themselves devout Christians. And then I, and then I talked to people who are really kind of against the teaching of Jesus because of the formal you know, organization and all the harm that the church has done in the past. And, you know, then there's, it's just this really kind of powerful place to be able to sit at and integrate. And at the same time, I'm constantly thinking about being respectful to cultures of origin and being respectful, not to appropriate, but to really learn and integrate as much as possible. And that small shift to change my thinking, let everything you do be an act of love. One of the things that I realized was that, um, you know, in this sort of, in this uh, really difficult legal battle, which, you know, if I look back now, I really could see that I would have there's no way I could have come out the winner of this. It was really blind. It was ego and narcissism that led me to go in and think that I could have, you know, won the war there, you know? Um, and I realized though, that I wasn't acting in love. I acted in hate. I allowed myself to hate the, 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 the adversary. And the moment I did that, then the whole dynamic shifted. And I realized that, that, that like, that was the source of all the struggle. And had I truly applied that teaching, of acting in love that I would have ended that struggle long before. And in new and, and, and then, you know, in numerous interactions, well, gosh, I'm here with this person. Am I here with them because I genuinely want to be with them or because I want something from them? And so then I realized, oh, I, I'm not actually acting in love right now. I'm acting in desire and craving and clinging. Well, I need to end this. I need to change. 
And so that's been really revelatory and uh, for me and, and it's kind of like set me free in some ways. So I really try mm. to not do anything that I don't feel genuine love for, um, mm. you know? And so then I, I and, and, you know, it's interesting because, you know, post pandemic, I feel like I, I, the whole idea of, you know, teaching a big class or whatever has shifted for me. I just felt like, wow, there's people there. You're in real life. That's awesome. <laughs> you know? And like, it's, uh, I remember my first class after the pandemic, there were like, I don't know, like seven people. And I was so excited for them. And they were all like, really far away from each other, yeah. you know, like with like a, with like a, like three different versions of hand sanitizers and gloves. I just, you know, that you tape yeah, around yeah. the area. Yeah. 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 Hazard, you know, so, hazard tape around the area. So you, you were teaching at this. Uh, you know, and uh, over these years, when you were feeling it, you know, and it is a really, you know, you present the picture really, really evocatively, strongly about how you were feeling, and you, you know, but you were teaching the, you know, these huge workshops, and and in, you know, under such duress, and yet presenting like a a, a facade at least that was so you know warm and friendly and and uh, you know and joyful, and in and inside you were feeling like you know hollow like this. I mean, I. Well, that's one thing people don't understand about about mm. about sort of struggle and depression, right? And this is mm, something mm. that people think like, "Oh, you're depressed, you just lie on the sofa all day." No, right. that's not mm. it. And this is this is one of the things that people don't understand. You know, some of the people, if you talk to who struggle from long term depression, sometimes what you'll see is it's like actually that most one of the most productive periods of of someone's life may be a period where they're struggling with really intense depression, and the only thing that's keeping them out of the depression is that there's something to do, that there's work to do, that there's students showing up, that they're there, there's some purpose and that, wow, okay, well, for this hour, I'm needed. Fantastic. But then what about mm -hmm. the other hours? What about the hours when I'm by myself? What about the hours when I'm not teaching? What about the hours when my mind is rehashing or ruminating on the past and I'm looking in the mirror and wanting to look different and questioning this? And, 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 and so what about those moments, you know? And so people misunderstand depression as, well, you're either depressed or you're happy, but it's not like mm -hmm. that. You know, even the person who's most seriously depressed, and I've, I've had suicidal ideation in the past. And, and even on a day where I've had suicidal ideation, I'd still have islands of happiness. I'd still have moments of joy. I'd still have a time where, hey, if you interacted with me in, in those two hours in the afternoon, you would have seen the joy that I experienced that day. What you didn't see was that I had a hard time getting out of bed that morning. What you didn't see is that I cried through my meditation that morning. What you didn't see is that I cried tears of prayers when I was, was you know, connecting with God. Mm -hmm. You didn't see how hard my practice was or that I cried every time I did Pashimatsanasana because that's where I felt safe. We didn't, you know, so it's like, it's almost like our pain is so private and it also fluctuates, you know? So I think that part of the reason why I want to share that, you know, even in the midst of pe being potentially productive or even in the midst of being willing to smile and laugh and, you know, um, share joy and happiness with others, that there's often a quiet side that's private, personal, and often um, not shared. And so many people have those moments and they feel that, they need to hide them or stuff them down or repress them. And when we do that, we, 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 we don't actually grow and evolve. We kind of stymie our growth and our evolution. So we want to, you know, my purpose in sharing is to normalize the ups and downs that we experience in every day and to normalize mm. the idea that even someone who is depressed may still be happy in the day, but that doesn't mean they're really str not struggling. 
And it doesn't mean that we should discount when they say, hey, I'm not doing so well, even if they're willing to laugh at your joke in the next moment, you know, that it's it's more complex than that. And and sometimes, um, you know, when we, when, especially for myself, when I feel down, one of the things that can help me feel kind of, uh, kind of good again is to feel that I have some purpose to feel that I, that, that my life is here for a reason. And I often see that reason in the mirror of the students and to see that, okay, well, it's not pointless. I can see that something that I'm doing is benefiting this other human being. So let's keep going. Like, yeah, let's mm. do more. Okay. That was, that was good. There's, there's some people showed up and we shared this space together and that was beneficial and they're inspired and they inspired me. And so then let's, let's keep going. This was good. Let's yeah. make the light grow bigger. Yeah. Well, thanks. I wanted you to share a little bit about, about that process. Cause I think it's, you know, it's really an, an important subject. I've been very honest about my own suffering from difficulties in mental health and many people have. And I think the more people that we can, you know, hear speak out there that are, you know, seemingly, you know, able and successful and doing stuff, you know, and, and hear that they also have challenges. I, you know, I find it inspiring to hear people like you say that they had challenges, you know, and you know, somehow, I don't know how it kind of gives one inspiration, like, well, okay, well, you've had challenges and you've kind of got out of bed and done stuff anyway. And that's, you know, yeah. that is, yeah, that, that sense of solidarity, I think is really important, you know, because obviously you kind of feel like when you're depressed, oh, everyone else is okay. <laughs> like, I'm just the one get really depressed. And Kino, Kino's there doing her thing. She's super happy all the time. And I'm here miserable and depressed, you know, and it's not like that, you know, and, uh, you know, I think it's important for people to hear that, you know, but bring it down again. I mean, what, how do you envisage practice as you get older? I mean, have you done different things? Have you changing things around? Are you using other modalities? Uh, everyone Ooh. seems these days to be in the, you know, if it's Eddie skipping rope or, you know, I've posted a couple of pictures of me doing a little bit of gym work, for example, you know, like, are you doing anything else? I mean, how, how do you envisage things going as, you know, as you, as you progress to, to not being 20 anymore? <laughs> mm. Yeah. I mean, my favorite thing to do physically outside of yoga is a nice long walk. This I right, love, right, right. you know, that's my mm. favorite thing to do. I've always loved that, but I am, um, I would like to go for more hikes. Um, not extreme hikes, like, 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 like walks on a mountain path, I should say. Um, and I really like being in the nature and I like, I, I like these moments when you go on a hike, when, um, say you're with some friends and, and, or even by yourself and you just kind of go and you walk and then there's just the silence of yourself in the nature and you're there and you're moving and you're walking. And I, I, I love that. I think that's really, really special. And I feel, I, 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 I think if I'm going to do anything else, I'd like, I like nice long walks. I also like to walk around the cities. So if you put me in London, I'm happy to walk around London as long as it's not raining yeah. too much. You know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, I, I like that. I feel, I feel this is a, I don't want to do anything like high impact. I mean, walking after a little while gets cardiovascular. So I think there's a little bit of, um, you know, uh, cross training in that you could say, but, um, you know, I, uh, I, I don't really do anything else super physical. I, I play around with some handstands cause that's fun for me. It also helps my practice cause I'm not naturally strong. Um, but other than that, I don't really, I, 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 I would try anything. A friend of mine brought me to a CrossFit class and it was horrible. I really didn't like it. I thought this was awful, you know, because they just kept on saying like, lift it harder, hit it harder. And I was like, but where's the technique? Like, what's the neuromuscular activation we're trying to activate? You, you, want, me, you want me to externally or internally rotate? And they looked at me like I was insane. And they just said, just yank it just up. Just do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, yank it up. really not for me. <laughs> Get that rope and, and, and start wiggling that rope. 
Yeah, yeah I was just like, it's not yeah. for me. Um, yeah. But a friend of mine keeps uh, saying we're going to go to a dance fitness class. So let's see, you know, I, I would try anything. I would try anything it's once. A, I'm going to go back to it again. <laughs> some kind of iterations of yoga box or, I don't know, someone said to me the other day, um, anger yoga is a type of oh. yoga apparently. What's that? Yeah. I don't know you get really angry and then it's angry. I don't know what you do after that. Yeah, angry yoga. Yeah. That reminds you, me of Osho. You try, yeah, you yeah, a bit I guess it's a bit like that, isn't it? You try and get angry and then something, you know, cathartic kind of happens, I guess. Um, yeah. Um, okay, well, I'm conscious of time, so I've got loads of questions. I'm just gonna go through them quickly in a quick fire okay. round. Um, and you know, because people obviously want to know the obvious things. Okay, so the boring, you know, maybe for you, but not for other people. The, what's your hardest posture? Hardest posture. Gosh, I mean, like the last, my, my, um, my last, uh, posture, I think that the, we, it's called Urdhva Padmasana and I can't do it without help. And it's like, it's in fifth series and it's uh, really awful. Yeah. It's really difficult. What's it called? <laughs> Urdhva Padmasana. Okay. Okay. So it's like, it's, right, I think, okay. I think it's, yeah. it, or Auto Padmasana, maybe it's Auto Padmasana. The Urdhva Padmasana is in the closing poses. So I think it's Auto Padmasana. Yeah. That, yeah. 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 Auto. Yeah. Right. Okay. I'll have to look that up. Yeah. I'm sure it is. Yeah. It, it, um, it, so it's, it's, you do Utlutihi and then you're supposed to lift up to handstand from Utlutihi. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Your elbows yeah. And yeah. 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 On the elbows. I used to love doing that one. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. one of his favorite party pieces, wasn't it? Just lift up and do that yeah. one. Yeah. 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 Yes, that that lift, even the Urbakukatas and the B lift, yeah, yeah, yeah. A bit tricky. Um, what about your um, your favorite posture? You passed your Matanasana, you mentioned. Was that, was that oh, I mean, I love a good forward fold. I mean, I feel like yeah, I feel it, like it, I I I don't think I could choose. You know, I mean, I feel like I love, I really, really love handstands. I love working on handstands. I think that they're just super fun. They bring up a lot of like feelings of self confidence for me. So I really, I think they're yeah, fun. Yeah, and I yeah. love Anything strength I love working on. Hands down the beach, legs on head. I've seen a thousand iterations of you doing that in every possible place imaginable. So that <laughs> surely must be surely must be your favorite. Um, yeah, I definitely like some version of handstand like that. Absolutely. Uh, other silly things. Um, your favorite TV? TV? Uh, Game of Thrones. I think uh, Game of Thrones was awesome. I mean, the last season, the very last season, and the last episode, but it was awesome. I really liked House of the Dragon too. So those are fun. Oh, seen yeah. these, right? Okay. I'm you looking seen Emily, in pa- Emily in Paris next next season. Uh, that should be fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Saw a little bit of that, but I couldn't. It's it didn't couldn't get into really. it. No, it would, maybe wouldn't. If you like Game of Thrones, it wouldn't be. It's not exactly the same, is it? What about what about music? What music do you like? Music, gosh, I, I mean, I, think I have I, no idea what what you, music you might like. Yeah, guess. I I yeah. like all types of music. Um, I really, I really, really love classical music. It's something that I, I put on quite often, and and strangely, classical music appears in my dreams very often. So one of the I started listening to classical music because I heard when I was much much younger, I heard piano music in my dreams, and so I woke up and went, wanted to find it, and I, it was so close to kind of Chopin. And then mm. um, my dad used to play Beethoven a lot. So I really, I really, really like Beethoven. I also love Mozart. I mean, I love like all the, you know, like the big, like the big guys, right? But I also love almost all, all different types of, of, of classical music. I think it's really special. I go to see symphonies when I can. I think it's a really special experience to hear classical music played live, really powerful. Um, but I also really like electronic music. I feel like if Mozart were alive today, he'd be a DJ. And I love electronic music. I love Deep House. I also love kind of, um, like experimental um, kind of like alternative electronic music, like Sigur Ross and Aphex Twin and Boards of oh, Canada. Yeah. Right, really, really right. 
Um, and then I also like, like just, you know, kind of down-tempo acoustic singer songwriter music. I think that's really fun too. Um, even like occasionally I, like some, you know, Tim will, Tim can put, Tim can get more into like loud rock and roll music than I can. I I'm, I'm kind of like sensitive to, to music. So I feel like the, the atmosphere of the music makes a big difference. I love traditional jazz, like John Coltrane and Miles Davis and Ella Fitzgerald. And, um, I think they're Chet Baker is really amazing too. I think like this kind of like really, like really, really good jazz is amazing. Um, you know, I feel like I, I can, I, I can appreciate musicality of all different types, but yeah. I think like, I, and then I also really like kind of just, um, ambient drone music. So like binaural beats, something to just put on in the background. Um, and then I also, if I'm teaching somehow meditation or, you know, restorative, that's definitely what I want on in the background. This is kind of this like you, ambient drone kind of thing. That what just about when you're writing? Of, hmm? Oh, when the writing, writing silence. Yeah. Silence. You're writing silence, right? Okay. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. Whereas, remember Eddie saying he was writing to the Pogues or some heavy, heavy. Oh God, I couldn't do that. Anything with lyrics. Space. Yeah, me. I know. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. Could believe it, but he's written a quite a good book, so it must be possible. Um, mm. What about favorite city? Almost there. Favorite city. What, oh gosh, where do you city. Like I most? Yeah, I don't think I can do that because I feel like everywhere I am, I'm like, oh, I'm not where I am. Come on. I have yeah, this yeah. feeling of like, I, I haven't asked you that like most hated city. city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, most hated city. I don't know. But but I will say, like, Miami is, of course, like home. Copenhagen is also home. It's one of like, yeah, super like, nice. Just, yeah, love it. The more and more, you know, the more time we spend, the more I love Copenhagen. I just keep improving yeah. the city in ways that just, just make take it some so money much with more. you. Take some good cash. Seriously. Yeah, seriously, you know, so yeah, then yeah. I feel like, you know, Miami, Copenhagen are amazing, but, but really like everywhere I go, there's something in the love New York city. I'd love to be in New York. I lived there for two years. Every time I go back to, you know, New York, Manhattan, I just feel like, wow, this is amazing. Uh, but I was just in Singapore and Singapore was amazing. I'm like, wow, I've been there. So it's, I really just have this kind of like, this is awesome. Singapore, but I mean, if you yeah. want to think about places where to live, this is something different. So I feel like I can love any place for like a week, a month, even a couple months, but to live someplace, then I feel like, okay, this is, this is something, this is something else, you know, most hated city. Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I feel like there are some things that were kind of, you know, strange. I feel like, I feel like maybe most hated transits would maybe more be on the list. So there were some things where you know, I really recommend if you can, if you cannot transit through anywhere in Europe during winter, if you're going to like India, it, if there's a chance it might snow, it's better for you to try to fly through Qatar or through Hong Kong or something like that. Numerous times I've been flying through London and Paris and, you know, because there's a quarter of an inch of snow, then like it's catastrophic. And, you know, there was once like 10,000 mishandled bags and I think it was more than that, but there were 10,000 passengers who needed to check out of London Heathrow and spend a few nights in London because there was snow and we were one of those passengers. And so this is probably like most hated transit and our, our, our bags got lost. They did find them eventually, um, but we were late to teach because of a quarter of an inch of snow in London. And it just felt like this is definitely the worst transit ever. And now I do try to fly through Qatar. <laughs> or Asia, yeah. whenever possible. If I'm going to go to India and it's going to be in winter, I'm like, okay, if I'm not going to Europe itself, then I'm like, let me just stay below the snow line. 
you know, because if it snows in Qatar, we have bigger problems than a delayed flight. What about best advice for traveling on that note? Any best tips advice or, to, yeah, to, yeah. To tra- for traveling, um, pick one airline alliance and then live and die for it because it mm. really does make a difference. And uh, I mean, unless you're just, unless you're just a traveler that you're like, you're going to do all the discount airlines, all the discount airlines is just fine, then do your thing. But if you're going to travel with one of the legacy carriers, uh, it, like for example, if you're, and along those lines, whatever the, the hub is in your hometown, go with that. So I'm in Miami and American Airlines has a hub in Miami. So I'm like one world forever. So I'm trying to fly with one world, one world, one world. But when we go to Copenhagen, that's the hub for SAS or SAS. So then now we're there. So then, I, I'm, like, so then I'm in Europe and I'm like, okay, now we try to live and die for SAS. But then like, ne- I never managed to accumulate enough miles on the SAS network. So then I still just like, okay, well, let me see if I can still fly one world, even though I'm in Copenhagen. So, but the thing is, is once you stay within one airline network, you can very quickly accumulate status. And then within the airlines, those who have shall have. As soon as you get status and you get all these perks, they give you more Hmm. miles and it's just a much better flying experience. But if you don't have status and you're like struggling and fighting for every little thing. And so I really recommend to find your airline alliance, stick with it. And then, you know, see where that leads you and then and choose it by the hub that's in your hometown. So a lot of people that live in New York, they do Delta because that's a big hub for them, but everybody flies to New York City, but like Delta is a big hub. There's a lot of New Yorkers, they do Delta um, and Delta is really good with New York connections. But I have a friend of mine that's like Air Canada because it's Canadian and then other, you know, so you find your thing. And then I just yeah, talked okay. to someone that like, they, they, they're on, um, they're on star lines, but they're Houston and then they do United. So it's like, you find the airline that works best for your hometown and then live and die for them. Fly within the network as much as you can, because it'll, you, what'll probably happen is you'll probably spend between 20 to a hundred dollars to stay within your airline network. So some people, you know, it's like, if it's $20, you should just pay the 20 bucks and stay within your airline network, mm-hmm. you know, um, because you'll, you'll really start to accumulate status. It does make a really, really big difference. I'm a terrible um, packer uh, in the sense that I pack really, really well. So I feel I can take everything. My husband would be able to talk to you more about how to economize and do Scandinavian minimalism for <laughs> your packing. I'm not like that. I'm like, I have status on the airline. I can take three bags. Let's bring them, you know? And Tim's like, he's traveling into... So he did this whole thing where he pre-packs and I, I do it a little bit, but he, he pre-packs. And then this really helps uh, him minimalize things. I'm super impressed by this. So he was traveling to Bali, India, which are, so it's like rain in Bali, dry and sort of chilly, but like dry, chilly, and also quite hot. And then he's going to Goa, which will be hotter. And then he's going to Dubai, which again, like desert. And then he's going to Copenhagen and to Sweden to be in like the deep, like midwinter. And he was like, he's like, so he's like looking at the, he's got to pack clothes for the tropical rainforest and then the desert and then the, and then, you know, and practice clothes for India and then super hot and humid in Goa and then snow and, you know, in Scandinavia. And then I said to him something about like, you know, there might be a sandstorm in Dubai. And he was just like, I'm not packing for a sandstorm. (laughs) But he got it all into one suitcase. If it was me, I would have had like, I would have packed everything really, really well, but um, in many suitcases. (laughs) And you must have, you must have like cut every currency in the world. You must have a bag with just like, every possible world currency. I try to give it away uh, when I, you know. Right, right, so you just get it again. 
Yeah, I feel like yeah, I don't yeah. want to hold on to it. Like they usually have these like charitable boxes where you have like you know and right. it's like such a weird currency, like twenty bucks left over in this in this currency. Let's put it away, you know, leave it or buy something in the airport. My mom, my mom's into collecting magnets, so now I'm buying magnets for everywhere everywhere I go. All right. Finally, it seems appropriate to ask you what 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 have you got any tips for yoga teachers, like aspiring yoga teachers these days? You know, I mean, how different it is to when you started yeah. when I started. What would you say yeah. to someone wanting to to start teaching these days? Well, I think that um, it is a different world to start teaching these days. So I think the probably the key, um, which would be really true for anything, any profession, is that expect to fail for a really long time. Don't expect to succeed. Expect to have the door slammed in your face and expect for people to tell you that you're not good enough, you're not qualified. And that there's no need for you, but keep keep going and 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 just check your pride and your arrogance at the door. And if a yoga studio says, "Sorry, we don't need you. Um, you're not qualified," then say, "I really want to be a part of this community. Would you please put you put me on your sub list and allow me to come to class once a week so that I can be a member of this community?" If someone says to you, um, "You know, uh, we don't like we're not looking we're not looking for any more yoga teachers right now," again, just say, "Keep me on file for the future," and then follow up. So be, don't be so, don't be so proud to assume that people are going to find you, um, you know, and meet the students where they are. So if you have a student that, you know, uh, you know, they, they, they can only show up on Tuesday afternoon and you're like, well, I only want to teach at this time. Well, you know, be flexible, try to accommodate and, and, and be willing to fail, be willing to, you know, I would say not quit your other job. Uh, if you want to be a full-time yoga teacher and, 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 and be willing to just, plug away at it and consistently fail. At the same time, the thing that would keep you motivated to keep going is to constantly remember why you want to teach. Why do I want to teach? What's my message? Why do I want to teach? Don't don't obsess about marketing. Don't obsess about what other people are doing. Don't obsess about, you know, this person, they did this super gimmicky post, so then I'm going to do gimmicky posts. Well, then you might wake up and have a lot of people that want gimmicky posts, but that's not who you are. So you have to stay true to why am I teaching? What's my message? And if you have three students that show up, if you're true, it'll grow, but it might grow slower than you want. So that's what I mean by accept failure. You might don't, you know, you might sit there and think, gosh, I'm such a failure. There's only three students. Change the thinking. Wow, there's three students. Let me build and really give them solid attention. Let me accept this. Gosh, I'm disappointed. I thought there were going to be 30 and there's only five. So let me work with these five students. Let me use this as a basis. How can I best teach them? Next week, gosh, there's four. I lost a student. Okay, what did I do? Don't take it personally. We take mm-hmm. it personally. We don't know that person. Their car broke down and we're like, oh, I'm a bad teacher. I lost a student. Uh, you have no idea. You know, Maybe they had a family vacation. Maybe they had a wedding to go to. Maybe they're hungover. Maybe they hate yoga and it has nothing to do with you. You know, Don't take it personal. Accept the failure. Keep going. Accept the failure. Keep going. Mm, that's great. Yeah, great advice. Right, finally, finally, I always ask this for the podcasts. What's the guilty pleasure? And a great inspiration can be a place, can be a person, can be a book. So guilty, guilty pleasure. pleasure. I mean, I don't know. I'm yeah. kind of, I, th- I would probably say... Um, Sephora is maybe a guilty pleasure. <laughs> yeah. Like I really love makeup and I, I, I just I about know what that is. Yeah, hmm? through Teresa. I just about know what that is through Teresa. Yeah, I've, st- yeah. I've stood outside many, many Sephora's as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, yeah. so I mean like makeup, yeah. I love makeup and I'm, I'm yeah. really interested. Like I just love it. I think it's awesome. I love to play with it. I love different, like, 
you know, finding different, and I, I, I try to do only vegan makeup because I'm vegan. So I do vegan, okay. vegan plant-based makeup and it's also better for you. And so many new brands coming out about that. So it's definitely guilty pleasure to walk into Sephora and be like, mm, I don't really need a new lip gloss, but there's a new vegan brand. Let's try it. So that's definitely a guilty pleasure, I would say. Not too guilty, really. That's not bad. What about inspiration? <laughs> you don't know how much I can, what I, what can happen. Oh, right. Okay. How about, yeah, right. right. Walking out with like, Tim, carry this huge bag of lip glosses. I just bought 200. Um, yeah. That would be guilty. Yeah. Um, it's not as bad as like someone saying, oh, I like, I don't know, what, what was it? Like something like serial killer documentaries or something like that. <laughs> it's a guilty pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. hear chocolate one more time. I just, you know. Just edit it out. Yeah, I don't think that chocolate is so guilty. I mean, there's antioxidants. No, come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, In fact, okay, I might go eat them now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you love chocolate, actually. Um, those chocolate tarlies in Goa. Yeah. Oh my god. Amazing. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if the place is still around. I don't know where they are. Yeah. I hope it still exists. Yeah, but that was amazing. Those chocolate tarlies. Definitely my favorite tarly. Yeah. Yeah. What's your favorite food, by the way? Favorite food? I don't know. In my store, coconuts, actually. Like, and yeah, one of the things I that I love coconut. to do is I love to experiment with different food stuff. So I, uh, I'm trying to make coconut yogurt right now. So I've gotten, um, I, I've drank some coconuts and I asked them to put the meat separate. So then I kept yeah. all like the young coconut flesh, like not the, not the super jelly flesh, but just the, and not the super hard, the medium. And then I put it in the blender and then I warmed it up and I added the vegan cultures to it. And now it should be doing its thing. So in about six to eight hours, I should have coconut yogurt. Very Let's see. Yeah. Let's see. I'm going to go wow. check out this science experiment after that. Yeah, because there's no vegan yogurt here. And I'm watching everybody eat like right. this and all the curd that. And I'm like, oh, so I'm like, let me make it. Let's see. Cool. Yeah. I'd say tastier than curd. I've never really liked the, the curd yogurt particularly. Um, right. See how it goes. Keep us updated. What about inspiration then? Finally, what is something that inspires you? A person, um, a place, anything. Can be anything. Yeah, I mean, I feel like um, I constantly read uh, books that I find inspiring. So uh, yeah. the la- I just talk about the last book I just finished was Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. And Malcolm Gladwell is yeah. insanely inspiring. So I feel like, you know, so I, any book of his I could recommend to everyone. What about the most inspiring person? Most inspiring person... I mean, I feel like my dad was definitely a big influence in my life. So I feel Mm. like uh, I think about him uh, quite often, my grandfather too. uh, And my mom actually is probably extremely inspiring on a day-to-day basis. You know, she's just 80 years old and just keeps, she's just full of energy and like won't slow down. And, you know, she's just, she's like superwoman. So she's constantly inspiring. Well, it's been an amazing chat. Um, I'll leave it there. Fantastic. I've loved it a little bit. And it's, yeah, it's great to speak to you again. Thank you, Keno. Thank you. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS. And that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. 
So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.